So this chapter, or this uh, section, basically has as its theme God's generosity to His children. It's um, dominated by this revelation of God's generosity, His goodness to His children, His disposition to bless His children, to give them good things, to answer their prayers. Uh, Jesus seems to fall over himself, as it were, to use language to get across to those who are listening to him and to us uh, how ready and eager and willing God is to answer the prayers of his children. So uh, let, let's look at Jesus' words specifically. And uh, in uh, verses 7 and 8, we have Jesus saying, ask, seek, and knock. Ask, seek, knock. And uh, in these three words, these three verbs, ask, seek, and knock, um, there, there seems to be a progression of proactivity on the part of believers. And I, I trust that you'll see what I mean. So ask, Jesus says. Ask and it will be given to you. To ask means to, to request. Uh, sometimes this word in the New Testament means to beg. And um, it assumes a person in an inferior position asking something from a superior. And so some example usages, uh, subjects requesting favor from a ruler, a beggar begging for alms, a child asking for something from a parent, or a person asking something from God. And Jesus' promise is that when we ask, it will be given to us by God. We're going to come back to that and talk more about that in a few minutes. So ask. Then Jesus says to seek. Seek and you will find. And that word means, the original word means to, to seek after, to search, to strive to find. And there's an increased intensity from asking. Ask, seek. And uh, here's a couple of usages from the New Testament. In fact, from Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one fine pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So there's that idea of intensity, of this very uh, intentional and purposeful and all-in kind of search also, Matthew 18 and verse 12, Jesus said, If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Same word, search. So ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. And then Jesus says, the end of verse 7, Knock, 
and it will be opened to you. So again, there's this progression. Ask, seek, and now here you are before a door. And on the other side of that door is blessing that you desire, blessing that will be good for you, blessing that God has in his capacity and in his goodness to bless you with, and you need that door opened. And so Jesus says, knock, and the door will be opened to you. Door is understood. I mean, what do you knock on? You knock on a door. So it's a, it's a word picture of the disciple of Christ knocking on a closed door. Now Jesus repeats the promise of a favorable answer from God. He's already said that. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And now the repetition of this promise of a favorable answer in verse 8. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Clearly, the, the thrust of these words from Jesus is to emphasize God's readiness to answer our prayers. This is an encouragement to believers to pray, to ask, to seek, to knock. But we should pause a little bit, especially because of um, some of the teachings that we hear in Christian circles, especially in the, uh, the name it and claim it movement, the health, wealth, and prosperity movement that basically takes this verse, and this is one of their favorite verses, and they take it out of its context and they basically say that this is like um, an unlimited, unconditional promise from Christ to basically give you whatever you ask. No limitations, no conditions, no strings attached. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. Again, I don't want to bleed this passage of its thrust that is that God stands ready to answer our prayers and that God delights to answer our prayers. But this is not a blanket promise with no conditions or limitations. Remember what we saw last time when uh, we opened up chapter 7, Judge Not? And we emphasized the three most important principles in not only biblical interpretation, but any interpretation of any literature. Remember the three principles? Context, context, context. So when Jesus says, judge not, in verse 1, well, there's more to that story. That's not, that doesn't mean that we are never, ever, ever supposed to have any moral 
judgments or any discernment whatsoever. We're not allowed to recognize that uh, somebody is in sin or in error. No, that's not what he says because he says more. Judge not that you be not judged. And he goes on to say that by whatever judgment you pronounce, it'll be that measure will be measured back to you, etc. And in the same way, these verses that we're looking at are in a context. And the context is the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been describing the nature of God's kingdom. And he's also been describing the spiritual characteristics of God's spiritual, true people. This is what God's children look like. And just to do a real quick review, back in chapter 5, speaking about God's people, they are blessed people. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. The, the Beatitudes, they're blessed, they're happy. They're blessed people, and they're pursuing true righteousness. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. It's not primarily an external righteousness, but it's an internal righteousness. And also, they are an authentic people and not hypocritical. Chapter 6, verses uh, 1 through 7 emphasizes that. Also, they know God as their heavenly people. When the Lord's prayer opens, Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. So we, we know God as our Father. We pray to him as our Father. Therefore, we're his children, and we pray to him that way. God's people are committed to God's kingdom and God's will. Back to the Lord's prayer. Hallowed be your name. We emphasize God's holiness. We pray for it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's people are committed to laying up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. Chapter 6, verses 19 through 21 which, by the way, eliminates the prayers of those who have embraced the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Because basically, that is a very earth-bound system, and um, they encourage very earth-bound prayers. And that reminds me of what James had to say, James 4 and verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. So it's possible to ask and not receive because you ask amiss. And how do we ask amiss? James continues, that you may spend it on your pleasures. And that's in keeping with the general theme of the Sermon on the Mount. And also, regarding God's children, they're committed to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Verse 33 in chapter 6. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
So here's the point. All of that is assumed when we come to these verses. So somebody who is characterized by the Sermon on the Mount, somebody who prays the Sermon on the Mount, and remember, the, some of the specific instruction from the Sermon on the Mount has to do with praying. There's, there's the Lord's Prayer. There's also, uh, in chapter 5, when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. All of that is assumed when Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone in the context of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, we've already seen one exception where everyone doesn't mean every single imaginable person without exception because people can uh, not receive because they ask amiss that they may spend it on their pleasures. So that's the context. That is uh, who and what these large and glorious and great promises from God apply to. Believers who honor God in their prayers. And believers who honor God in their prayers are encouraged to expect God to answer their prayers. God will not withhold any good thing from us. And there's other passages in the, in the New Testament that present such a big promise from God. And I'm, I'm not going to read all of them, but here's just three more. So later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will say, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. John 15 and verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By the way, if we abide in Christ and, ab and Christ's words abide in us, that affects what we wish for. That impacts our desires. But nevertheless, that is a big promise. James chapter 5 and verse 16, the effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man or woman accomplishes much. So ask, seek, knock. Then Jesus goes on to support this invitation to ask, seek, and knock by um, referring to the ultimate gift giver in verses 9 through 11, the ultimate gift giver. So verse 9. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? And of course, Jesus' hearers and Jesus' hearers now, we hear those words and we would say, well, of course I would never do that. Of course, 
any sane, decent father would not do that. If his son asks him for a good thing, he wouldn't give him a bad thing, a harmful thing. And then Jesus argues from the, the lesser to the greater, verse 11. If you then, who are evil, thanks Jesus, but that's not meant to be an insult, it's, um, it's biblical anthropology. In other words, as God sees us as the righteous judge, we are all naturally evil and inclined towards evil. We, we sung about that in the, one of our songs that we just sang. But it cracks me up sometimes when Jesus tells it like it is and we gloss over that. But it sounds funny, doesn't it? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and we do, don't we? That's why... We spoil our kids around Christmas time. It's fun for mom and dads to get their kids Christmas gifts, and it's fun to watch their kids open those gifts and to see their joy because as image bearers of God, we're gift givers, and we enjoy that whole process, and we enjoy the joy that it gives to our children. We know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more then, Jesus continues, will your Father who is in heaven, he's the ultimate parent, he's the Father of all the living, especially of those who believe, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We saw the heart of God from Psalm 103. He has compassion on his children. And here, this compassion is expressed in his eagerness to give good gifts to his children. But even here, there's a bit of a limitation and boundaries because he is the father and we are the children. And when children ask for things, sometimes what we ask, what children ask for isn't good for them. If your child said to you, Mommy, can I have 12 Snickers bars for lunch today? Hopefully you would say no and you would explain why and all of that. But sometimes kids ask for things that aren't good for them, or they may ask for things that it's not quite a good time for them to receive. Maybe they're going to ask for something that you're actually planning on giving them for Christmas or their birthday or what have you. But there's a time dependence that a mature parent, a mature adult, recognizes, and children don't always recognize. They, they want instant gratification. That's part of what separates children from adults in some cases. And that's the same thing with us and God. There are some things 
which if God gave us exactly what we ask for on our timetable, it wouldn't be a good gift. Sometimes we can ask for something that's not good. And because God is good, he's not going to give us that exact thing on our timetable. Sometimes he gives us exactly what we ask for in his time, not our time. Sometimes he gives us something that's not what we exactly ask for, but it's in a different form. Sometimes the answer is just plain no. But in any case, whatever the, um, the circumstances, God blesses his children. He gives us good things. And this is a reminder that God is the ultimate gift giver, like James wrote about in James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. That's our God and our Father. So the ultimate gift giver. Then, in our passage, we come to verse 12, where we have what's known as the golden rule. And uh, depending on your translation, the, the language may vary. The ESV has it, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Uh, in, in my uh, ESV here, the golden rule, verse 12, actually goes with the next section. That's how they have it. And some commentators include verse 12 with the next section, some commentators think that verse 12 is basically by itself. It's its own subject. But I think it fits with verses 7 through 11. After all, it does begin with that word, so. Which is pointing back to what Jesus has been saying. And there is a sense in which the golden rule is a summation of what Jesus has been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, you, you uh, take everything that he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount and it can be boiled down to whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. And he did say something similar in chapter 5 and verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them, part of that fulfillment is his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. The true meaning and the true scope and depth and breadth of the law. But I think that the golden rule is also connected to verses 7 through 11. So, what Jesus had, has just said in verses 7 through 11 also implies that whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Notice that Jesus didn't say, 
whatever others actually do to you. That's the ethic of the world. That's how people in the world generally behave. Tit for tat. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You cross me, and I'll make you pay. Not whatever others actually do to you, but instead, Jesus says, whatever you wish others would do to you, or whatever you, you would have others do to you, do also to them. Treat others the way that you wish to be treated yourself. That's the gospel way. And then Jesus says, for this is the law and the prophets, or this sums up the law and the prophets. And remember, the law and the prophets is a shorthand way of uh, referring to the whole moral teaching of the Old Testament. In any given situation, in our interactions with other people, whether we can remember a specific command or precept or law or guiding principle from Scripture or not, we can always ask ourselves, how would I want to be treated in this situation? That's what I'm going to do to others. And Jesus did not invent the so-called golden rule during his public ministry. He actually restated what, is, what was already written in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, where we read, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then uh, elsewhere, it's going to go on and mention the golden rule. So the law of God mentions the same principle. And there's other religions, other cultures that have a golden rule. The New World Encyclopedia, for example, says the golden rule is a cross-cultural ethical precept found in virtually all the religions of the world. And by the way, the way I look at that is not that Jesus is borrowing uh, from the law of Moses or from other cultures or other religions, but remember, Jesus is the creator. All things were created through him and for him, and uh, nothing was made without him. All things were created through him. And Jesus is the true light which enlightens everyone. And so because Jesus is before uh, all other people, he's the creator, this is part of people being created in the image of God, that uh, we would have his law written on our hearts and we would have this instinctive sense that it is right to treat others the way we ourselves want to be treated. So back to what I began saying here, what does the golden rule have to do with prayer? Why is verse 12 connected with verses 
7 through 11. There's uh, two main things. First of all, God won't answer our prayers if we mistreat other people. And it's not resolved. Remember what we saw in Matthew chapter 5 earlier in the same Sermon on the Mount? Verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, therefore, before the altar and go. Don't forget, prayer is a spiritual sacrifice. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And has that ever happened to you? You're praying and you remember, oh, there's this separation between me and this other person that needs to be resolved. And God says, go and resolve it. Then come and pray. Mark 11, verse 25, Jesus says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And when we pray, a big thing that we pray about is the forgiveness of our sins. Well, God's not going to answer that prayer the way we want him to if we're not forgiving others. And then 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, this is God's terror to husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The, the th threat there in 1 Peter 3.7 is if we're not living with our wives in an understanding way, and we're not honoring them as this precious, valuable, crystal vessel. We're not treating them as heirs together with the grace of life, but we're treating them as a lesser being. Then there will be this iron curtain between you or me as a husband and heaven. And I've experienced that. It's a terrible situation to be in. And when you sense that iron curtain, <laughs> you're highly motivated to take care of that as quickly as possible. And, and for good reason. So God won't answer our prayers if we mistreat other people. That's the connection between prayer and the golden rule. But then secondly, and this is really interesting, God wants us to know that we won't be shortchanged if we treat others the way that we should. And that's the way our brains work sometimes. We think that, well, if I treat others the way that I want to be treated, then somehow I'm going to be shortchanged. 
somehow I'm not going to get what's coming to me. Or the other person is going to get more than what's coming to them. That's why Jesus wants to remind us of this treasure in heaven that is waiting to be bestowed on us through prayer. The largeness of God's heart, the uh, immensity of his compassion and generosity towards us. Because of that, we are free. We are free to whatever we wish that others would do to us, do also to them. John MacArthur comments on this. In light of the great promise in verses 7 through 11, we can feel free to fully love others and totally sacrifice for others because our Heavenly Father promises that we have access to his eternal and unlimited treasure to meet our own needs as well as others. We can do for others what we would want done for ourselves without fear of depleting the divine resources and having nothing left. That's insightful. And that's the connection between prayer and the golden rule. And so finally, wrapping this up, what did Jesus do? And we could talk about a lot, but I just want to mention two brief things. What did Jesus do? And we're, we're thinking specifically about uh, prayer and the golden rule together as a package. Well, the first thing is that Jesus is coming into this world and dying on the cross is the ultimate expression of the golden rule. Remember the words of Paul from Philippians chapter 2? Let's, let's look there. We won't spend any time on it, but I would like to read it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Paul says there, beginning in verse 3, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So there's this connection between ourselves and others. That's the basis of the golden rule. Verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is taking the golden rule, do, do to others as you would have others do to you. That's taking it a step farther, at least a step farther. And, and why should we do this? What's the basis of that? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. No one, 
has ever kept the golden rule. No one has ever counted others more significant than himself. No one has ever looked not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, more so than Jesus Christ. And his work on the cross, which included his incarnation and humiliation, all that Jesus did in order to die on the cross is the ultimate expression of the golden rule. And so think about that, especially if you're an unbeliever. Don't just think about the golden rule as Christian morality, even though it is. But it's more than that. It points to the Christian gospel. It points to the good news of what Jesus has done for sinners like us. Sinners who don't deserve good gifts from God, but instead we deserve God's wrath. Sinners who, because of Jesus, not only receive good gifts in this, in this life, we receive the greatest gift of all, the gift of salvation that transforms our lives now and gives us the title, the right to eternal life forever in paradise. What else did Jesus do? He opened the way for us to the throne of grace. So we've been talking about prayer and asking great things of God, expecting great things of God. That's actually all based on what Jesus did for us. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that because Jesus came into this world and he lived and he died and he rose again, he removed the barrier between us and God, the barrier of our sin. He has brought us near to God. He paid the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He's the ultimate great high priest. And because of that, we have free access, not just to another human priest, but to God himself and his throne, which the book of Hebrews describes as the throne of grace. And so because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the writer of the book of Hebrews says to us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what Jesus did. And these promises from Christ of asking and receiving, seeking and finding, knocking and it will be open to us, it's because of what Jesus has done for us.